This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London alongside this afternoon. Bloomberg Opinions, Marcus Ashworth. We'll deal with the markets in just a moment. European stocks a little softer today. The pound and the euro having a pretty decent rally. Marcus, I've been away for two weeks. What have I missed? Uh, absolutely nothing. It's been very quiet, very peaceful. Nothing's happened to all. No, it's all been bliss. Well, um, you say that, but no. Uh, stock markets are up. Bond market yields are down, and most importantly of all, the euro is not below one to the to the dollar. Um, and there's been lots of exciting political stuff. We'll talk with the, talk about the political stuff a little bit later on, both from an Italian perspective and from a UK perspective. Marcus, champion at the bit to discuss both of those. Just in terms of where we are with markets, uh, equity markets, FTSE 100 down by one-tenth of 1% today. Oil stocks acting as a little bit of a break, but good numbers out of HSBC. We'll talk about that later as well. And as Marcus says, uh, we have also seen a strong euro today, but also quite a strong pound in advance of the Bank of England Thursday. Uh, remember, the market is now pricing in a 50 basis point hike from the Bank of England. Uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail in just a moment as well. Charlie Pellet is here as well. He's back. I'm Guy Johnson. He's Charlie Pellet. These are the headlines. Hi, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Big warm welcome back. Good to have you with us. And Guy, of course, on Huddle Day last week, the final week of the driest July for England since 1935. A searing heat wave last month pushed infrastructure to the brink and severely disrupted travel. The unusually dry weather came as temperatures rose above 40 40 degrees for the first time. The intense heat sparked fires near London, triggered warnings that railway lines could buckle, cancelled flights and forced power stations to operate at low levels to prevent overheating. The dry and hot summer that's spreading across all of Europe is also a stark reminder of the unfolding climate crisis. Foreign Secretary Liz Truss says there would be no other, uh, will not be another referendum on Scottish independence on her watch if she wins the Conservative Party's leadership contest to become the UK's next Prime Minister. The Scottish National Party is pushing for a new referendum after losing a 2014 vote, citing the UK's 2016 vote to leave the European Union as justification. British Airways has now halted ticket sales on some short-haul services out of Heathrow right through next Monday to make room for passengers who've had their flights scrapped amid capacity caps at the hub. The unit of IAG says the move follows Heathrow's request for carriers to limit new book after introducing a limit of 100,000 daily departing customers on July 12th to help cope with a staffing crisis. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, again, welcome back. Back to you now in London. Great to hear your voice, Charlie. Thank you very much indeed. Charlie will be back in around half an hour's time to keep us updated. Um, I didn't partake of the Heathrow experience this time round. Um, maybe a good thing. We'll see if that gets resolved ultimately. Um, Marcus, the last two weeks have been incredible in some ways. In some ways, nothing has changed, but so much has changed. And I'm, and I'm coming back and I'm scratching my head and I'm looking at these equity markets and I'm wondering why the rally? Uh-huh. Um, why the rally? I suppose it's you can only really, really rational it is you look at the states where something similar has happened. Um, bad news is good news because... 
if the economy is turning down, as you can see clearly in the, in, in UK, US, and Europe, there's lots of we go into the mirrors of diff- yeah. different data points, but all of them are pretty good. That therefore takes the expected peak terminal rate of all the central banks substantially lower. I mean, you look at Europe, it's gone from over 2% to below 1% in the space of just a few weeks. So it's a dramatic yeah. turnaround in what they expect uh, the central banks to, when they stop... So, so I, was, I was talking to Bada Boeja at UBS about this just a few minutes ago. And he, his, his line basically is, equities need a mild recession. I, they, they need <coughs> They're going to get one. <laughs> Sorry? They're going to get one by the looks of it. Well, yeah, but... but is that actually the best thing that could happen for the equity markets? Because as you say, it's going to bring it takes some of the steam out of the tightening that we're going to see, in particular from the Federal Reserve, and allow equities therefore to 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 sort of price kind of where we are now, kind of to sort of confirm what's priced now, and therefore ultimately rally. Well, you may see a dip in the near term. Ultimately, in twelve to eighteen months' time, you may see equity markets higher. The problem will come. We don't get that recession, and the data at the moment from the states point to the fact that yes. While we may see a technical recession, the growth slowdown that we're going to see isn't going to be that great. And if that's the case, inflation isn't going to come down and the Fed's going to need to accelerate. So I'm wondering if this is a bear market rally or whether or not actually this is the kind of the precursor for something more sustainable for equity markets to deliver upon. Yeah, well, uh, if I knew that answer, I probably wouldn't be talking to you. Uh, But uh, I'll be on a very large yacht somewhere else. Uh, No, but the reality is, at the moment, you've gone from a super fantastic picture in the States to a mixed one. You look at durable goods, you look at employment, a number of different indicators, you can see continued strength. You look at other things like housing, a raft of other sort of more forward-looking indicators, uh, and you start to think, oh, the economy is turning. Um, obviously, the Fed is still hiking, but for the moment, you know, the point is, is that it's not a recession probably yet in the U.S., yeah. But at least if there is to be one, it's coming from a position of very low uh, unemployment and a lot of strength across the space, a lot of savings, banks in good places, household and corporate balance sheets in good places. Ditto the UK. Europe has got uh, a different world of problems there. It, it does. So let's just park the gas for, for the moment. Let's talk a little bit about Italy. The, the market seems to be looking for good news. I am stunned to see how much BTPs have come in over the last few days, just on this idea that maybe even a far-right government would stick to the economic policies that Draghi has pushed through, and i.e. Italy would be able to accept the money that is coming out of, of Brussels, 200 million, circa 200 billion, uh, in terms of the amount of money that could be dished out. I, the, the market has reacted very quickly to what appears to me to be a very uncertain situation. The market is desperate for good news at this point, it seems. Yes, but then at the same time, the conditions are quite different from where 2018 put us in a situation of complete uh, disagreement among European nations. We've still got uh, a consensual wanting to stay within the euro and more importantly of all, wanting to abide to much more relaxed, obviously, uh, Brussels uh, budgetary rules. So it's the point is, is that whatever it takes to keep uh, the euro going, project going along, will look to be done it looks like what the potential right-wing coalition is going to be um, at least playing within the boundaries uh, to start off with anyway. And I think that uh, takes out perhaps the wild card of, of the five-star, uh, leaves us with some other different wild cards, but maybe uh, ones that are slightly more containable. Um, and it's more the whole overall attitude of Europe and Germany in particular to, towards Italy is, is far more... Uh, 
complementary. And in that sense, you know, it's not going to be pretty. There's going to be some lumps and bumps, but that they look like they're going to be manageable. And everyone had got so a little think, bit. You think Italy, you think Europe can hold it together? Uh, you got Italy, as you say, you got a myriad of problems. You think Europe is going to be able to hold it together through a cold uh, winter? We're going to talk about gas later on, but you think that that we're going to be this is going to. It, well, the problem gonna... now is not just Italy. You see, this is this is the dynamic. Is you've got a sharply, you know, the only uh, country in Europe which didn't grow essentially in, in the last quarter was Germany, and it looks like it's going to be very severely faced with a, a much more uh, declining and horrible problem because of gas. And therefore, that changes the dynamics towards Italy as well. And if the Italian government can unlock this 200 billion, that is really all it cares about, because then it can fund itself and then it can keep the ball rolling on for another can down the road for another year, two years, three years. And that is the most important thing. We'll talk more about this a little bit later on. Marcus and I are going to be discussing the gas uh, issue that Europe now faces, uh, a massive problem that could, as Marcus says, drag the uh, the German economy down really quite significantly. Uh, up next, we're going to be talking about something a little bit closer to home, what is happening with the Bank of England. Thursday is the next meeting. The market is now anticipating that we will see a 50 basis point hike from the Bank of England. We're going to talk Big Macs and the Bank of England next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. 5.10 in the city of London. The pound rallying strongly today. 122.81 against the US dollar, the cable rate. We have to talk about that on this program. This ahead of a Bank of England decision Thursday uh, that is now priced to deliver a 50 basis point hike from the uh, from the MPC. That would be the biggest rate hike in 20 seven years. And it's going to raise some interesting questions uh, for those vying to become the next Prime Minister. Of course, here talking about Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss as they both talk about cutting taxes, the yin and the yang, monetary and fiscal policy really in focus. Marcus, A, should the bank hike by 50 basis points? Yes, uh, and it almost certainly will. I don't believe the arguments that somebody putting out that only 25, so they will see core CPI as uh, having come down a little bit last month, and the fact that the economy is wobbling. Uh, I, I think they'll they'll look through both of those and see um, stronger inflation coming down the down the pipe very soon, and they have to get uh, in line with what both the ECB and the Fed have done. So I, the, the, one of the first pieces I read on the Bloomberg Turnbull this morning was the Bank of England needs a Big Mac and fries, written by one Marcus Ashworth. And the point that really sort of caught my imagination as I read this piece was picturing Marcus Ashworth in a McDonald's. Ha, never, never to be seen, I'm afraid. You won't, you won't. <laughs> <laughs> a lesser spotted, uh, yeah, yeah. No, not, not a chance. But, Ashworth. Uh, nonetheless, I do think it's a very important guide to inflation. And I, I think simple things index. like that catch the imagination. Um, so, so, but but the point here being that you've seen a huge rise in terms of the cost of a Big Mac. Um, you've seen the you've seen Unilever doing the same thing. Everybody is pushing up prices, and this is what the Bank of England needs to pay attention to. We talk about core being critical, but actually these are the rises that that the average consumer is facing right now. Yeah, and it's not just as we know food, but it, food is is now the corollary of, of higher energy inflation. Yep. That is the direct uh, secondary around effects and therefore expectations, and that is exactly right. If you think that uh, your Big Mac or your cheeseburger is going to cost you twenty percent more, you, you're now your mind is programmed in as everything's more expensive, and therefore I need more money to to survive. Therefore, I'm going to ask my employer for more for more money. 
Yet the two candidates that are leading to become next prime minister are both suggesting, with some U-turns in the mix as well, that we are going to see some very significant tax cuts. So my question is, will tax cuts mean higher interest rates? Uh, Yes-ish. It depends on the level of them. I think uh, if we follow fully every word that Liz Truss has uttered, as in being deliverable, which I don't think is the case for either uh, candidate, but I think particularly for what Liz Truss is saying, I don't think she's going to be able to deliver everything, or certainly not uh, before the next election. Um, nonetheless, uh, if the immediate stuff is as in they won't go ahead with the corporate tax rises and they will reverse the national insurance um, rises in April, uh, along with a bunch of stuff on presumably uh, bunging people more money to go for energy bills and cutting the VAT on sales tax, that's quite a lot. That's the fiscal headroom gone in a flash and probably more. Um, I would think if it comes to, for instance, a debate uh, at upcoming meetings between doing 25 or 50 or more like between doing zero and 25, the Bank of England could, could well go for higher because it, it feels, one, the government's got its back as far as preventing a recession. It's quite important that. But therefore, it can be more aggressive on, on uh, doing its actual job, which is to you know get a grip on inflation. Are you surprised how well the UK data is holding up right now? No, I'm the only person that's seen in the entire newsroom who seems to think that there is actually a fundamental underlying strength in the UK economy, and uh, it's nice to be proven right. Again. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, again, again, being the, the operative part of that sentence. Uh, uh, an, okay. an optimistic one, yeah. Yeah, but, but I, you, you do wonder... Are you, the, the challenges that are being faced by whoever ultimately wins, and I'd be curious to get your take kind of where we are on this in 30 seconds, are going to be immense, aren't they? I don't know. I, I just think that some of the things that Sunak is, is having to be dragged out of him, you know, he, he just shouldn't have started for this place. Fundamentally, what went wrong is he should never have hiked national insurance. And that's what's caused the frustration of a prime minister and the inability for him to, to, to follow, follow on. It just shouldn't be tax, hiking taxes in, in, in a high inflation cost of living crisis and therefore downturn madness. Up next, we're going to be talking about HSBC out with very good numbers a little bit earlier on. We're going to hear from the company CFO. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You are listening to The Cable on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Marcus Ashworth. A little later, uh, sorry, a little earlier on, we got numbers out from HSBC. Uh, the numbers were good. They were surprisingly good. They were 6% to the good. That's the rally that we saw in HSBC stock today. The numbers were good. They also, as a management team, pushed back on this idea that this is a bank that should be broken up. Ping An, the bank's biggest insurer out of China, has made that suggestion. Now, as the numbers came out, Bloomberg's Mark Manus Cranny spoke with Ewan Stevenson. He's the chief financial officer over at HSBC. They started talking about their earnings. He talked about his sort of concerns going forward, Ewan. Uh, Here's a little bit of their conversation. Rising rates has certainly beneficial to us. Uh, interest income was up 20% Q2 on Q2. Revenues were up 12% overall. Uh, we also kept costs flat, so we had a, an enormous amount of operating leverage, uh, 12% jaws in the quarter. Um, and we also had a, a one-off tax benefit too, so profits attributable to ordinary shareholders are up 60% on a year ago. So we're very pleased with these results. Your ECL, expected credit losses of over a billion dollars. Where are the biggest source of concern in the credit losses? Is it China? 
Yeah, look, there's only, I think, one portfolio globally, Manus, that we're uh, playing close attention to, which is really the offshore book of our China commercial real estate exposure, uh, just over $12 billion of exposure, or about a third of it is substandard or um, impaired. Uh, we have taken about another $150 million worth of provisions this quarter for that. And I think, as you know, the outlook for the Chinese real estate continues to be um, continues to be weak. Ping An, have you had any formal, informal, bilaterals, any conversations at all with them so far? Yeah, look, we're definitely talking to Ping An and continue to talk with them. Um, you know, they've, they've raised, as you would expect, with any major shareholder raising issues with us. We're taking it seriously. Uh, we've still got work ongoing on the structural alternatives that they've proposed. I mean, based on the work that we've done Are they today, actively asking you to split the bank, Ewan? Are they making a categoric request to split the bank and the listing? Well, well, certainly in terms of what we understand that they're looking for is some form of structural alternative. We've uh, spent some time together with outside advisors looking at it. We've put some details into our investor materials today. Um, but, I, but I think when we look at all of the various structural alternatives, a combination of upfront cost, a lot of complexity, it would take us three to five years to implement any form of material structural alternative, uh, together with high ongoing dissynergies. So, you know, we haven't completed our work, but based on what we can see today, it's very, very hard to find any value case that we could put in front of shareholders. So three to five years before a material change. So you, you are actively talking about a separation and a Hong Kong or a Chinese listing for HSBC? No, That's no, what a material no, change a, would be? Not at all, Manus. Actually, our conclusion is that the structural alternatives relative to the standalone plan uh, just don't stack up. Uh, we don't see the value case uh, to do anything relative to the plan that we see is beginning to deliver material uh, near-term value upside for shareholders uh, with very uh, you know, execution risk that's uh, totally in our control. What kind of dividend do you expect to reward with a special dividend to, to, to sort of hold the investor's nerve with you? How do you set up the, the dividend narrative for 2023? Uh, well, we've announced today that we're returning to quarterly dividends. Um, you know, we're very conscious of uh, the fact that pre-COVID we were paying out at 51 cents a share. We're very keen to get back there as soon as possible. Uh, we certainly would mm -hmm. expect, based on the earnings trajectory of the bank, to be back there in the next couple of years. That was, of course, Ewan Stevenson, the chief financial officer over at HSBC. Marcus, I think this is going to become really difficult, though. Ewan Stevenson putting the case there to keep this bank as is, i.e. London and Hong Kong. But you think about the geopolitics that are emerging. Nancy Pelosi, the US Speaker, House Speaker, potentially tomorrow is going to Taipei. You are going to see massive pushback from the Chinese as a result of this, probably accelerating the fragmentation that we're already seeing between Beijing and Washington, D.C. It's just it strikes me it's going to become more and more difficult for HSBC to navigate this kind of politics. True, but it also pushes both ways. I mean, the size of HSBC, I mean, it is Hong Kong. Uh, banking yeah. in all the sense of purpose, Hang Seng Bank, you know, which it owns, is is such a huge profit driver for it. But most importantly, it is the plumbing of Hong Kong and the wider um, Bay Area around uh, Shenzhen and Guangdong. So it, it is, it is going to. It's not a, 
an institution which the Chinese can play with too uh, aggressively because it's also committed to um, boost out, you know, fulfill its name of Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation to much wider um, banking network and more efficient and better banking throughout. But if it China. does that, but it, but if it does that, doesn't it have a problem with with Washington DC? Doesn't it have a problem with London? Well, yes and no. Uh, I think the point is is that the, the the stick's been wielded by China, but there there also has to be a carrot. And I and I think uh, what HSBC is trying to do is 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 take itself out of the political process, which of course it can't, by by saying yes essentially to both sides, wherever it may be. Um, you know, this is a plaything at everyone's precisely. Peril. Yeah, um, I, I, but I I do think that the the management is taking a little bit more. Uh, careful studied approach than it has of the last previous two or three years it's doing it on the back of of, of sustained business reasons and i think that's a better place to if, be if if it was to be split how big a blow would it be for london well the business outside of the profit centers of hong kong is worth considerably less uh in both senses because it's it, the cross subsidization of uh, and the, the risk and the ability to to provide the various solutions that are, that are true global, you know, yeah. that and JP Morgan are, are clearly really what I'll call certainly during the crisis, the only two institutions that kept the world afloat, uh, are vast and it will be a far less profitable and, and exciting and, and valued bank. But that's why I'm almost convinced this looks bad and a lot of nasty talk going on, but I don't, I cannot see it ever happening. Okay. We will watch with interest at the moment. I guess sort of the profitability story is certainly going to help out management's case. Uh, up next, have you left London? Are you thinking of leaving London? We'll discuss that next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Marcus Ashworth, equity market stateside. Rallying a little bit. The Nasdaq's up by four tenths of one percent. To be honest, the SP is basically flat at 41.32. The dollar's down a little bit today. We've seen the euro gaining strength. The pound as well getting some traction in advance of the Bank of England, which is now expected to hike by 50 basis points on Thursday. Those are the markets. These are the headlines. Let's catch up with Charlie Pellet. Thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Ukraine made its first shipment of corn since Russia's invasion, a small but crucial initial step toward unlocking the millions of tons of grains piling up in the country and boosting global food supplies. With Russia's invasion well into its six months, President Vladimir Putin said over the weekend that his Navy would soon be equipped with powerful Zircon hypersonic cruise missiles that can fly at five times the speed of sound. Munich plans to burn more oil and coal instead of natural gas as part of Germany's efforts to counter Russia's moves to squeeze deliveries of the fuel to Europe. The Bavarian city's local utility has revived oil burners at two heating plants that were previously shut. It also postponed the planned conversion of a power generation block to gas from coal. And Credit Suisse Group handed out more than 250 million pounds in a single month to retain top bankers, spooked by years of scandals, losses, and an ongoing leadership shakeup. England's victory against Germany in the final of the Euro 2022 football tournament set records for attendance and television views, signs of surging popularity, and growing financial potential of the women's game. England triumphed 2-1 at Wembley over the weekend. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. 
Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. Cracking game. Uh, Charlie, thank you. Okay, let's move on. Let's talk about what is happening in the property market, a subject, of course, close to many people's hearts, uh, including, I'm sure, <laughs> Marcus Ashworth. Um, oh, yes. Mark- Marcus, the the story that uh, that a lot of people were focusing on this morning was the story that Londoners are leaving the city in droves as the COVID trend persists. The average London mover apparently bought a property 26.4 miles away. Uh, Popular destinations including Epping Forest and Slough, I'm sure for the schools. Yeah, exactly. Um, The grammar there is very good apparently. Yeah, rumor, rumor has it. Um, let's talk more about this because I think this is uh, this is fa- this is fascinating. Uh, Ivana Havenko joining us now from our property team here at Bloomberg to discuss this. I- Ivana, we thought this was going to be a pandemic or post-pandemic trend. Why are we seeing it persisting, and what kind of volume are we talking about? Uh, hello, guys. Thank you for having me. So this is actually fasc- a fascinating trend. Uh, and if anything, so we're now seeing many more um, Londoners moving outside of London. But what is, wh- when you look under the bonnet, what is very interesting is actually now it's, uh, the proportions are slightly shifting. So we're seeing uh, relatively fewer, lower proportion of home movers moving outside of London and actually more uh, higher proportion of first-time buyers, which makes an absolute sense with the average property prices being the 14 times average London income. It's absolutely staggering. So uh, perhaps given the work from home and... Um, and the new normal, people may have decided that actually I can now move out by that home earlier rather than wait to my late 30s to buy my first home in London. So it absolutely makes sense. And um, that, that said, we're seeing many more people, even in, rather than just the share, also yeah. in the num- actual numbers are, are larger with people moving out. And having said that, I mean, all those years back, we bought our first house outside of London simply because we couldn't have afforded anything in the capital. So absolutely can relate to this on a both macro and a micro level. It's interesting, because from what I'm seeing uh, just anecdotally and very recently is that uh, all those lucky uh, types of the country selling to the urban types coming out, polluting the countryside with their, their wicked ways, um, it's actual fact people buying um, back in London. Uh, obviously, some of these are, are people who have, um, you know, uh, seen their kids move out and what have you uh, and, and no longer need the local schools to quite such the same degree, but are moving back and buying in places like Clap and Fulham and, uh, and perhaps sort of the nicer parts of, uh, of, of London. And certainly if you look at sort of anecdotal estate agent, uh, you know, the, the higher end London, central London is starting to, pick up the slack after a, 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 a pretty poor couple of years? Uh, well, again, I 100% agree. And actually, uh, this report from Hamptons was very interesting in the sense that actually they think uh, the, the second highest proportion on record of outsiders coming back to London. And when I said I can again relate to this, uh, I think it's also that the pandemic, once you, for people who have lived outside, they probably uh, realized what they were missing as well yep. because London has so much more to offer and with the reopening you are uh, by being moving by, by moving back to London you are so much closer to the facilities and everything uh, and again this, on a micro level mm-hmm. Ivana is this, is this a working from home story or is this just a just a space story 
Uh, in terms of um, moving out, I think I would say uh, definitely, uh, I mean, it's a bit of both, but I think um, with work from home, there has been a certain paradigm shift because that even now the longer commute doesn't hurt as much. Right. Uh, but I, I, I'm, I'm a, I absolutely can relate to anyone moving back. I, I have done this as well after years and years. Uh, of living outside, and I think this will come back. However, anyone who's bought outside of London uh, recently, they probably are not coming back for a long time, given some duties, etc. <laughs> uh, Until and, they realise how much it costs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and exactly, exactly. So, and I think, um, uh, yes, I think after a few years outside of London, uh, people will start missing the. At, um, the, at the activities they would have inside. And this, this trend is actually already visible among the tenants. So the rental market in London is absolutely booming. Uh, we're looking at rents rising 16% year on year, and they're yep. now way above pre-pandemic levels. And obviously, but however, uh, renters are obviously much more mobile. They can up their stakes much faster than anyone who has just bought a house outside of London. Could be a bit of a story. Grass is always greener on the other side. Um, but I think... Um, I'm a strong believer in London, and even on a macro level, I believe that once they see those t- those ticket prices, uh, perhaps those uh, long commutes okay. won't be as appealing anymore. We're going to leave it there. Great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. Really fascinating story. Um, it's going to be interesting, as, as you say, just to get an idea of exactly what happens with some of the trends that are going on here. Ivana, thank you. Marcus, I think one of the, the other interesting stories that I, I've taken note of over the last few days has been this idea that actually... There isn't enough infrastructure in the southeast of England to continue building homes. There's not enough power in particular. Uh, yeah, that's partly because all the data centres that have ballooned. Yeah. Uh, that place Slough, there again, it gets yeah. comes again. But uh, uh, have, have taken up uh, all the bandwidth, or whatever the expression is, of... Uh, so, yes, there's not enough um, ability to safely build more houses. I don't think anyone in the west part of London will feel that, uh, any tears of that, because it's a pretty built-up place. And what with Heathrow winging over a board, a last thing is yet more uh, housing estates. Nonetheless, it does show, as you quite rightly point, the infrastructure. Um, you know, we, we need to build homes yeah. not just where there's demand, but where there also can be uh, properly supplied uh, infrastructure. Absolutely. Uh, Marcus and I are going to carry on. Plenty more still to talk about. We need to talk about this energy crisis uh, that is gripping us here in Europe as well, talking of electricity supply. We'll do that next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. The big take on the Bloomberg Terminal today was a story that we've been focusing on for really quite some time, but seems to be getting more and more pressing. Germany has three months to save itself from a winter gas crisis. Here in the UK, uh, we are certainly likely to suffer some sort of gas gas crisis this winter, particularly if it's cold. But in Germany, the situation is getting really serious. Potentially, we are looking at rationing, certainly uh, for industries. We're already seeing large metropolitan areas turning off hot water in the local swimming baths and big housing associations already warning that they will be lowering uh, the thermostat for thousands and thousands of their residents. Marcus, this is the story that I can't call. This is the story that I find really difficult to get a handle on. 
I don't know what kind of economic trajectory the Eurozone is on in particular without knowing ultimately the availability of gas that we're going to be having this winter. No one else does, Guy, and that's why it's uh, the conundrum. You know, how, how do you balance? Uh, I mean, just look at Germany. You've got three uh, incoming sort of, you know, um, imponderables. You've got the level of the Rhine falling, you know, so because whole, of the already congested uh, supply chains are, are made even worse. They're going to carry a third of the load if they can get up there. That's making, a, a, you know, a, a very bad situation worse. Along, obviously, with they don't know whether how much gas storage they'll have about sixty odd percent at the moment, but you know that is that going to carry them through to April, which is uh, the expectations at best. It might just be a squeeze, and they don't have the infrastructure to build uh, LNG terminals or other different means of getting uh, hydrocarbons in. Uh, and then as we mentioned earlier, retail sales have fallen off a cliff in Germany because inflation is so high, and just like it happened in the UK, the consumer has hit a brick wall and said no more, and that is. A very difficult situation, hence it's the only European economy, yep. major one, to not grow at all in the second quarter. Uh, the south of, of, of Europe did extremely well because of tourism and reopening. Yeah, tourism's having a very, very strong summer. I would actually add a fourth one into that as well, and that is China. Um, China is actually managing to export. It's pretty efficient at that, but it's not importing. You talk to the big shippers, they're talking about the fact that actually what, what's happening is they're sending cargo loads out from China full, but those containers are coming back empty because China's just simply not importing stuff. But let's focus on the gas uh, and talk about where we are and where we're going. Bloomberg's William Wilkes joins us now to discuss this. William, the big take today I thought was fascinating. Let's talk about why Germany has taken so long to wake up to this problem. I'm not talking about the long-term politics of its dependence on Russia, but the fact that politicians have not made decisions earlier in order to maybe limit demand for gas this summer. And gas is already becoming problematic. Where are we as we head towards winter? Hi, Guy. Um, on your first question, I think they, it was partly wishful thinking. They they were kind of hoping perhaps the, the Russians would keep delivering gas. You know, there's always been this theory in Germany that the Russians aren't going to want to, you know, ruin relationships with one of their best customers. But I think with Putin's cutting Nord Stream down to 20% and all, all of these kind of interruptions with the the, the turbine that hasn't been flipped and that they, they've kind of realized now that there's no kind of hiding from it he's probably going to cut the gas up at some point um where are we in terms of going into the winter um we are the gas storage um facilities are, are filling but they're not filling particularly quickly and the big question is are we going to hit these targets within so kind of october and november and there's a lot of nerves in Berlin and with the regulator that they, that they might not be able to hit those targets. Well, that's just staggering. I just, I just really can't get my head around some of this. I mean, Guy, what do you think to this here? I mean, it's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Well, so I think it is extraordinary in as much as there's been very little political planning. They, there was this sort of Ostpolitik that existed in Berlin for so long, and you saw it through the Schroeder era, uh, and then you saw it through the Merkel era as well. They, they didn't want to accept that there was there was this risk that they were running. Others were certainly aware of this risk and flagging it. The, the Americans in particular uh, were very keen to do that. Oh. But it now puts us in a situation where Germany is very, very exposed. Uh, and you do wonder kind of what, what can happen in the interim. 
let's let's just kind of focus on this for a second and think about what we could be looking at this winter. You could be looking at a situation, William, where you do have to turn the thermometer down, where you do have to to turn the showers low. But 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 they could get much more serious than that. In terms of the industrial planning that's happening right now, what are big companies like BASF doing? Companies like BASF are frantically kind of scenario planning that that's kind of the first line of defense work out what different kind of gas gas delivery shocks would mean for different businesses they've also bsf uh, in particular because of the very high prices it's having to cut back on ammonia production which is kind of a, a, a key key ingredient for fertilizers but it's very gas intensive uh, and they're having to cut production of that and that'll have impacts on farmers next year you know there's going to be less fertilizer is going to be more expensive it's going to show up and it's going to aggravate the food crisis that's, that's stemming from this war and apart from that bsf are just trying to save as much gas as they can oh that does sound as if we may have l- lost william lost, lost william yes. um, these chemical companies in germany have this thing called the bund system which is like a, a production system where each Part of the chemical plan passes kind of raw materials and intermediate chemicals onto the next one for finishing. So it's, they're kind of quite sensitive if they have a big gas jet. If that takes out kind of poor steam cracker and that ability, it can, it can take the whole plant out. Um, so, so BSF are kind of planning and, and trying to avoid those things. So, William, I don't know if you can hear me or not, but um, uh, as I often say to my colleague, Javier Blas, do you have any good news? Uh, because it just seemed to me that everywhere you look, uh, particularly the German situation, uh, lack of supply, uh, storage from Gazprom, you know, no terminals, LNG, uh, coal, even getting coal up the Rhine, uh, levels of flow for nuclear power reactors, there, there is nothing but bad news. Indeed, I think it's like the, the, what's happening now is kind of the culmination of several decades of, of kind of wayward German energy policy, going from everything from over-reliance on a gas provider that everyone knew would perhaps one day try something like this. Like there's, a, there's a European gas plan that was devised because people were unsure about kind of Russia reliability. And this romantic idea that you can get out of coal and nuclear at the same time and Germany can be like a nice happy place with renewables is is you know it's 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 coming to a head now and and not in a good way and i think also even on renewables while germany has a good reputation for kind of building out renewables actually when for people active in the german economy you can see that that, they've got another problem with that they they don't the, the planning system is so slow that they can't build renewable infrastructure very quickly you've got these power hungry factories in the south and you've got the wind you know the wind supplies in the north and they don't have the long-distance cables to transport the energy. So this winter might really be the culmination of of, of all these errors in German in German energy energy policy. Um, and some how of much the William did they spend on solar? I think Germany spent hundreds of billions in in, in, in getting the solar and got it down to grid parity. Thank you very much. The rest of the world, but it, it hasn't done them much good, has it? Yeah, no, I, th- I think there are estimates that the energy vendor, so the, the German transition to green uh, energy has cost over 500 billion, kind of half a, half a trillion euros. And it'll be way above that, actually. That was from a few years ago. Um, and yeah, and it's, it, it may have got them, got them nowhere. 
That sounds like a familiar noise in the background, certainly in my house. <laughs> yeah, I'm screaming sorry, too. Yeah. <laughs> William, thank you. For that. No, no, no. We're all, we're all used to that. William, thank you very much indeed. William Wilkes joining us uh, on today's Big Take. Germany uh, has three months to save itself from winter gas crisis. Marcus, it's fascinating. You, you compare and contrast what's happening, particularly on the industrial fronts uh, across the Atlantic. Germany really struggling, potentially heading for a more difficult situation this winter. You look at the Chinese data as well. Certainly uh, the industrial side struggling there really quite significantly. Then you look at what is happening over in the United States. Uh, we saw the ISM manufacturing data a little bit earlier on. It came out at 10 o'clock Eastern. Cameron Kreis, our good friend and colleague on the, the Markets Live blog, talking about the fact that this was about as close to Goldilocks uh, as you're going to get, um, given the current backdrop. The headline number, better than expected. Notable prices, the, the notable prices paid line, which we all watch so carefully, coming down really quite sharply. Big part of that energy. Um, it was it, it was a really good piece of data. Uh, we did see the construction data uh, coming on alongside it being less good, but nevertheless, um, some really quite good data. And it's really interesting to compare and contrast the industrial data that we're seeing on both sides of the Atlantic. Kayleigh Lines and I actually caught up with Tim Fiore, who puts that ISM survey together, uh, and we sort of got his initial take on how we should be reading the data. Let's just take a quick listen to that conversation. Okay, so we're, we continue to expand at uh, you know moderate kind of levels here, uh, but if you notice all the indexes, they've only moved one, one and a half, maximum two points. They're not the headline indexes, the ones that go into the PMI. They're not moving dramatically. So we've had a definite shift of adjustment here. Let's talk about demand first. The orders continue to contract slightly. No big deal. An expert in this area kind of uh, advised me that hey, look, when the new orders are above forty, you don't have to really worry that much about a recession coming. So. That's a really interesting point. New export orders came up a bit, which is really good. Uh, backlog is shrinking because new orders are slowing down still because we have overordered over the last year, year and a half. And I think the only thing on the demand side is that the customer inventory number kind of crept up closer to 40, which is an indication that at some point in the future, customers aren't going to need as much inventory. So, the, hey, demand's solid here, I think. There's some indications. We had panelists reporting that things are softening again, but that softening could be well outside of a normal order stream. So the story is really on the supply chain side this month. Well, you know, we're sitting there now at 55.2 on supplier deliveries. The situation is getting better. And it's demonstrated by the fact that prices are coming down too. Those kind of fall yeah. together. Well, to that point, Tim, on prices coming down, it's the biggest fall in the prices paid index since 2010. What is the signal there as to whether or not that decline is durable? Well, it's the fourth largest drop since we started keeping numbers in 1948, which I think is really cool. So, you know, but I think a lot of it has to do with energy coming down over the month, but we also see steel slowly coming down too. Aluminum prices are coming down. Uh, copper prices are coming down primarily because of the softness in China. But we seem to be coming into a level now that's much more towards equilibrium. The issue that is still in front of us is that lead times really haven't changed much. And I'm really waiting for the lead times to start to contract. We had lead times come down a little bit on CapEx, but not, not significant. I'm, I'm hoping in the next two or three months we'll see lead times come down coupled with the prices coming down, you'll see the new order rate pick up again. Tim, just to stay on that number, the prices paid number, the rate of change, as, as you've indicated, as Kelly's indicated, is, is substantial. But what you're saying is basically you think it's going to come down and now stabilize. Is that the, re the right read here? Or do you expect the next month's number to deliver another sizable downturn on that figure as well? Well, I don't really think so, because I think we're at a kind of an equilibrium here. We're getting close to that. I mean, a 60 number on the prices is maybe two to three points higher than you really want it to be for equilibrium. You want the supplier delivery number to be 55 to 59, 
that shows a normal stress between the, the supply and demand. You want the prices number to be kind of 55 to 58. Uh, we're not quite there. Tim Fiore, who runs the uh, the numbers over at the ISM on the manufacturing side, conducts the surveys, giving us the kind of the instant analysis there after that data drop. Had quite a uh, an interesting um, uh, impact on the market. Marcus, but this is the problem, isn't it? It's kind of almost come full circle back to where we started the conversation. The, the data out of the States point to a slowdown, but they certainly don't point towards a recession. And this whole idea that that we need a recession to get inflation sort of properly out of the system, to get the Fed to calm down, the data don't support that idea yet. Well, I mean, the only thing that makes me worry is is that if the Fed continues to hike, maybe not by 75, but still 50 and then another 50 and whatever else, you know, what we're not seeing is the full effect uh, of the time lag of, of, of interest rates really really killing through. We, we saw mortgage rates and what that what that did to both building and data home sales. So I mean, in some senses, um, I, I think the worst is yet to come for the US. Nonetheless, as I mentioned earlier, there is some fundamental lying strengths, underlying strengths, which are not going to go away very quickly, uh, if at all. And so any expected recession, if it, if it well, technically or not, you know, the semantics of cyber in or not, yeah. it's going to be relatively bearable. Um, it's but is it ga- really but, but is it going to be enough to bring inflation down? This is the question. So you listen to some of the economists and what they're saying. They're saying that basically the Fed's got this kind of idea about neutral, which basically relies on the idea that we're going to continue to see goods price deflation ultimately reasserting itself. That at the moment is not happening. And there's this kind of ultimate assumption that, that ultimately inflation is going to return to trend. Let's call it kind of two or two and a half percent where the Fed wants it to be. If it doesn't, you, you look at kind of valuations in equity markets, they are going to need to adjust and adjust significantly. Barnaby Wager was talking about this. He said, the case Schiller, if you have inflation settling at 2.5 versus 3.5, the difference between those in terms of equity valuations, if you, if you feed them into the case Schiller, is a 25% drawdown on equities. Yeah, but, uh, you know, this slightly confuses me because I have written this article as well. Why are we so monofocused on 2% as inflation target? It's madness. We can't actually measure inflation to start off with. It's some of the stuff we're looking at and expecting to be out of control is well without, you know, outside our reach. And as a central bank, they really ought to know that. Uh, they've taken all the credit, perhaps, for you know super low inflation over the last few years. Yeah. And now, unfortunately, it's going to be much harder. So what do you do? Change the target. Simples. Well, yeah, that, that's OK. But, but to come back to the point about valuations... If, if you're talking about equity valuations and they've got uh, and you're basically basing it on a discount rate of X, if you make that X plus one or X plus two, that's a significant t- t- difference in terms of the valuations that you can apply to stocks. True. But again, you can change the P-E ratio and what, what is considered X and Y again can change. I, I think that the US equity market is adapting. You can see it's adapting in front of our yeah. very eyes. Uh, you know, perhaps driven partly by, by the sharp fall back in, in bond yields, which I think has genuinely surprised yeah. everyone. Certainly volatility has come down. Yes. Cool. Marcus, we'll leave it there. We'll resume tomorrow. We'll do it all again on Tuesday. This is Bloomberg.